First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, all of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all woods people? We are actually in between hunts right now. We got a cold front, didn't we, Casey? We did, and it was it was actually quite chilly this morning. I was... Uh, very cold. Actually, later in the morning, too. It's like the wind picked up, and that really put that chill in there. But uh, it actually got some deer on their feet this morning, which was nice to see, man. Yeah. Dude, I listen to a lot of things that you say. I take, I take your, um, your knowledge and, and uh, just what you have to say with a lot of respect. Well, thanks, man. Um, I don't know if that's uh, well-grounded, but well, hey. The, the one thing I don't listen to you on... <laughs> Is layering. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I asked you this morning, I was like, it's kind of, it wasn't really a suggestion, but it was kind of like, I was kind of, I guess, suggesting what I was going to wear. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's going to be this cold. And so I was like, are you going to wear a uh, Celsius jacket? You know, whatever, which is kind of our, our heavy jacket that we both kind of have. And you were like, no, I think I'm just going to go with the... Uh, what was it that you wore today? I was going to do the heavy merino and, and the vest. And vest. And yeah. I thought I had a fanatic, but I didn't even bring it. So. Yeah. So I, anyway, like you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do that. And so I didn't take your advice, and I'm glad that I didn't. On yeah. That. I, know, I don't have the vest, but like I, I didn't. I took my my Celsius jacket, which is my big jacket, which is not really like super fun to you know haul around in the woods but <laughs> michelin man style i'm glad i took yeah, it yeah it was chilly yeah but uh yeah we saw a few deer actually after we got down out of the stand we made a little razoo to do some uh rattling and and saw some does and a little little bucky <laughs> a rattling razoo rattling huh? razoo that's it <laughs> i yeah. like it dude yeah well uh today on the podcast we have uh this is kind of a bonus episode it's one that we didn't really intend uh, to do and didn't we don't it's not on our normal schedule but we're doing it because we feel like it is muy importante <laughs> and so uh, this is this is a podcast and it is with Brian Murphy of the QDMA um, he's a CEO but um, the important thing is it's about it's not about CWD and what CWD is you've heard that a million times probably by now and you've heard it probably once or twice on this podcast but what we wanted to do was address what uh, 
um, you know, how it affects us, CWD, uh, in regards to, like, taking your trophy home. Yeah, what actions we need to take as hunters, right? right. Because, like, the last thing that we want to do as people who care about this resource is impact this resource in a negative way and then impact, like, the future of hunters. Yeah, that exactly. would be terrible. Yeah, and, and same, and even uh, more direct, like, in your household with meat consumption and that yeah. kind of thing. Like, how does that work? What about testing? So some questions that KC and I have actually been talking about, and we decided, you know what? If we have these questions, I'm sure there's a listener or two out there that has that same question. We should go ahead and get somebody on the podcast that can answer it. And luckily, at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnerships Media Summit this year in Bozeman, Montana, we had the pleasure of really getting to know Brian Murphy and a uh, great dude and tons of knowledge. Um, so we're going to get to him in just a second, but real quick, remember, we have a giveaway going on. KC, line out the details We for are us. giving away an Exodus Trek trail camera, which we're going to go check a Trek right now, <laughs> <Holy> actually. <smokes. laughs> and uh, uh, we're going to see what's on that one. But you can get your own if you go to iTunes right now and leave us a five-star review. You, know, you do need to say something, but it can be real short, just like, hey, guys appreciate the podcast or whatever something like that real quick five stars and then by halloween day we will have selected a winner and one of these lucky people who gives us a review in that short period of time will win a exodus trek trail camera that's awesome man yeah. I, I can't wait to give another one away which by the way the one that we uh we gave away last time uh was that for youtube comments mm-hmm. on nameless um, has not been claimed. So Ooh, running out of time. Yeah, running out of time. We're gonna. I guess we're just gonna directly, since apparently this guy is not gonna watch our Facebook Live video that we did <laughs> selecting him. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and probably tag him on YouTube here pretty soon. And then if that doesn't happen, if he doesn't claim it within like a week after we we tag him on YouTube, we're just gonna be like, Yo, dude, um, we're giving this away. Yep. So sorry. That is and our gonna, statute of limitations. That's right. We're right gonna there. give it away. Uh, give it away again. So. Uh, Anyway, that's I mean, you might have a chance in another with two Exodus tracks. So anyway, but for now, the iTunes review. Don't forget. Uh, now that we're stopped, let's get on the phone with Brian. Sounds good. On the phone now, we have Brian Murphy. He's the CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association. What's happening, Brian? Oh man, it's getting cooler here for a change. We're looking forward to some, some good deer hunting weather. Yeah, and here would be in Georgia. Are you there right now? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, here in the great state of Georgia, the yeah. big storm just moved through overnight. Oh, yeah, that's right. Y'all had uh, some hurricane weather probably, huh? We we did, yeah. How, how's so that I, for you? Well, it you know, what it, it largely missed uh, my part of Georgia, but what it did do is put a lot of food on the ground for the whitetail. So a lot of the, the uh, oaks that were already dropping a few acorns, now there's going to be abundant food for the next week or so. So it's going to be a little tough hunting. Uh, because there's going to be food everywhere, but uh, but that's all right. They're they're in the, the rut still a, a several weeks away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we kind of in the same position. We've had quite a bit of rain here in the late summer, early fall, and um, yeah, it's been tough, man. I mean, still lots of green stuff all around. It's hard to see and everything else. But uh, have you uh, had a chance to actually go out and and uh, chase them around a little bit? Yeah, well, it's, it, yes. I've, I took my daughter on two occasions. I, I'm, cool. I'm blessed to have a, a two daughters that hunt, uh, but my 18-year-old uh, came home from college over the weekend, and uh, thankfully she wanted to deer hunt with Dad. So we went out twice uh, with the crossbow. It's still archery season here, and, and uh, she managed to take a doe on, on, on both hunts. Oh, nice. So uh, so we got some venison in the freezer, and Dad's got some work to do in the next couple of days cutting it all up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a, the good thing about being a – 
young person is you just let your parents do everything for you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, well I, used to, I used to have to drive her. Now I don't have to drive her, but uh, but I still have to, to do the gutting and skinning and, and yeah. processing. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and okay. I'm happy to do it. I'm just happy to have two teenage girls that want to hunt. Sure, that's right. That's, that's no lie right there. Well, so what do you, just kind of for the listener, explain what you do What as a CEO of QDMA. What do you do? Yeah, I, for the last 21 years, I'm blessed to have been in this position a very long time. But for the last 21 years, I've been uh, running the Quality Deer Management Association. And of course, for those that may not know us, uh, we're a national nonprofit conservation organization uh, dedicated to the future of whitetail deer and whitetail deer hunting. And uh, we got members all over the U.S. and Canada and even a few around the world. And uh, we primarily are, are the leading advocate for the whitetail deer, trying to create uh, more educated and more successful deer hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had the we had the pleasure of meeting you at the national convention here this summer and in, uh, in Louisiana, and that was that was a pretty cool event, man. That was uh, KC and myself. That was our first time, so uh, pretty not a bad place to spend it since we tend to be kind of uh, we like food. So <laughs> there's a lot of good food down there in New well, Orleans. Yeah, exactly. If you like to eat and like to learn about whitetails and meet some some pretty pretty cool uh, deer hunters and land managers, uh, we're we're a good place to, for that to all come together. Sure. Yeah, and and so. Um, did they just, since knowing that you were from Texas, did they just offer you that CEO position, like no big deal? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, it was, uh, back then it was a, a staff of one. I started, I was the only staff member, so it was not, I had a a big fancy title that meant I got to do everything from, you know, washing (laughs) the, washing the floors and, uh, you know, answering the phone. So I'm blessed to to have a, a a staff of about 40 now. And, uh, so we're, we've grown and, uh, it's allowed us to, to make a lot more of a, an impact on our mission and, and on whitetails. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But it didn't hurt that I came from Texas. That's what got my foot in the door for graduate sure. work at the University of Georgia because that's where quality deer management and a lot of the pioneering science had had come from on deer management was out of Texas. And so certainly having my roots there and my undergraduate training and work on a lot of the ranches in Texas that allowed me to, to I think, uh, have an edge over some of the other incoming students in the east out here. So right. uh, it, did, it did help me out. Yeah, man. So – I guess Casey and I were talking about this. We didn't, I don't know why we didn't. Uh, we may not have paid attention as good as we should have. But <laughs> I don't know why we didn't realize you had been um, the CEO for 21 years now. Um, what what happened? Where is the Australian story in there? Like, what is that? Yeah, I was, bl- I was blessed. Just immediately prior to taking the, the the reins here, I was working at the time for the University of Georgia in a deer research capacity after grad school, and had a an opportunity uh, to to uh, go to all places in the world that no one has ever been, probably Tasmania. And uh, so my wife and I jumped on a plane, took a job site unseen, and and uh, flew down to Tasmania, which is the island state of Australia. And um, I was the uh, uh, deer manager down there for the Australian government. I was uh, uh, the first deer, trained deer biologist in their country. They had a, a mess on their hands with overabundant fallow deer and a lot of different user groups mad at each other about what should and shouldn't be done with them. And uh, so they they uh, they threw me in the middle of it and said sink or swim and thankfully it worked out. <laughs> thankfully it worked out pretty good and yeah. we had a wonderful time. That's yeah. cool. You uh, you called a lot of spiders while you're down there too, didn't you? Oh yeah, man. We uh, they got all kinds of things that slither and crawl and uh, some nasty spiders and snakes and uh, all Tasmanian devils. So it's a it's an interesting place for sure. And yeah. uh, if somebody likes to to hunt and shoot a lot, uh, that's a place to go. Australia in general. I mean, uh, my first rabbit hunt. Me and a buddy got 99 rabbits and. Took my daughters over a couple of years ago, and they they uh, they filled a pickup truck full of wallabies one night. So, uh, <laughs> golly, there's there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things to, to do and see over there that are very different than this yeah. part of the world. On the main island, is the is the big fence still functioning? 
the well, the dingo fence. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it is or not. I'm sure it's like all fences. Uh, you yeah. know, they have holes in them and things fall on them and animals get out. Uh, but they still try to maintain it. As far as I, last time I was over there, they were still talking about trying to maintain it. Uh, so it must have some some degree of, of keeping dingoes out of one part of their country and and not the other. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So a lot of this, you know, backstory that we have with you is uh, we actually were uh, privileged to meet up with you at the TRCP Media Summit this summer and, and get to hang out and and actually kind of get to know each other and talk about stuff and really listen to all your cool stories because we don't have near as many as you do. <laughs> so, uh, but the, one of the big reasons why we were all there this summer was, um, well, the main topic of, of the whole event was CWD, right? And right, we right. had a couple panels that we got to listen to and interact with that was that were real helpful, and uh, of course. It's been kind of at the front of our minds for, you know, a couple years now, especially since it's kind of gotten to Texas and and really probably thanks to some of the work that QDMA has done is to like publicize and make it known that CWD is an issue because, you know, uh, to be quite frank, you know, and, until two or three years ago, I didn't really understand that it was a thing, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. and ever since that has kind of happened and then we went to the TRCP summit, you know, following up from the QDMA summit where we, or the National Convention where we talked about it. Um, it's, we've really been kind of struggling with a few things and a couple questions, and I think that our viewers probably or our listeners probably have some similar questions. So we kind of wanted to get you on the phone today to run through some stuff about CWD, not so much about what the disease is, but more about like the human side of it. You know, what can we do right. to uh, mitigate the issues that that at least that we are in our control, and then you know. How safe is it when it comes, you know, we all like to hunt to eat, right? It's it's a part of it. It's part of the experience. So I guess first off, um, aside from the eating, honestly, like I love to hang antlers on my wall. They're beautiful. They're, they're you know, great. They're great for stories. You know, I love the tradition of it and everything. But um, seeing that CWD is concentrated in spinal columns and in the brain a lot of times, it really kind of puts a damper on trying to bring a head back with you, say, if you travel out of state or something, or even if you go from county to county. How should you approach that scenario? Right. Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, an increasing number of, of hunters now are traveling to hunt, um, going on multiple states or multiple areas in a given year. So it's a it's going to be an increasingly uh, necessary understanding of CWD and their responsibility of how to handle that. First of all, let's talk about kind of the two ways, the two primary ways that CWD is spreading. One is, uh, you know, human-assisted movement of, of live deer and elk, uh, mm-hmm. whether that be by the, the deer farming industry or even by state agencies. Uh, both of those groups are still moving some live deer and elk around, and because we don't have a very good, reliable live animal test, we don't always know and can't know that whether those animals that are getting moved may or may not have CWD. So that's that's one thing that's largely out of the hunter's control. The one thing that's in the hunter's control is not moving uh, high-risk deer parts, and, and you mentioned those, that those being the, the, the brain matter, the spinal column, the bones uh, of the animal from an area that has CWD to one that doesn't because conceivably you're moving that infectious material to an area, perhaps you're back 40 where you dump the carcass and lo and behold, you may have an outbreak where you live and you brought that with you from Colorado or Montana, wherever you came from. So, so that, that speaks to the need to, to, to process the animals the correct way before leaving uh, a state or area with CWD. And, and what's more important there is that a, a growing number of states, even many that don't have CWD, 
are, are closing their borders to deer from any state that isn't boned out or, or the skull caps cleaned. So Alabama just did this recently, just as an example. So I could uh, literally hunt uh, in in Georgia, where it does not have CWD, and, and, and drive into Alabama with a whole deer, another state without CWD, and I'd be breaking their regulation now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you can't bring in any, any deer parts that aren't properly um, – uh, process. So, what does that mean to the hunter? Um, first thing is be knowledgeable about wh- wh- where you're hunting, and if they, if that state or any state you're driving through um, or back from has regulations. Uh, but the easiest thing is is not even to worry about that. Just process the meat yourself, and that means just debone it, take all the bones out of the meat. And if you do have a, a, a buck that you want to retain the the the, uh, the trophy quality, you'll have to learn how to cape it out. Uh, in other words, the full cape, not just cut it off the neck, but I mean the full cape off mm-hmm. off the head, and cut the skull cap out, and then make sure that skull cap is is free of any brain matter. And if you can't do that, don't know how to do that, either a learn or b, you know, plan ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. Look for taxiderm, look for taxidermists in the area. Many taxidermists will, will do the cape job for you, even if they're not going to do the finished work. So just just plan for that. Build in time to bone your meat to take your deer to the processor and uh, the taxidermist and let them do the caping. Can I ask you you a question right there? Um, Mm -hmm. When you talk about cleaning the skull cap, is it just actual brain matter? It's not like the inside lining of the skull or anything like that. Just as long as all the brain is gone, you're good. Yeah, just get all the, yeah, get all the brain matter out and wash it out really good and, and, uh, you know, let it dry. And that usually uh, would adhere to the regulations in, in just about any state out there. And, uh, you know that's the and that's you know that's uh it's extra work for the hunters no question but would you rather do that extra work or potentially be bringing the disease back to where you you live oh the hunt, first perhaps, answer hunt. the first you, answer a you know, hundred times yeah so it's just it's just, and you know what frankly I'm you know I, I learned how to do a, a full cape years ago and I find it quite rewarding to be able to do that on my own animals and sometimes if you're in the field for several days and it's warm you need to do that just to preserve your cape and. uh you know, so, uh, you know, I enjoy that part of the process, bring you a little handy saw or a sawzall to, uh, you know, cut the skull cap off. Uh, it's not a big deal. Uh, deboning an animal is not hard. And, you know, what I tell people after they debone it, heck, you're 80% of the way to doing all the processing yourself. So buy yourself a little cheap grinder or sausage stuffer and have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, le- learn, how, learn how to turn that into something you're really proud of. And, you know, and I find the more of that process that I control, uh, A, I know what's going into it. You know, that's one thing now with CWD that's a concern to me is that, you know, it's certainly possible, if not likely, that a lot of processors around the country have run CWD positive animals through their facility. And and frankly, that infectious material, we have almost no way of, of truly, you know, uh, you know, sanitizing that environment. So it's certainly possible that even if your deer CWD free, there's a chance that some of those prions could get into your your meat that you get back from the processor. Because we all know that sometimes the processors do things in batches, and you don't know what part of that batch is yours, right. <laughs> and yeah. what somebody else's. Uh, so again, another reason to be what I call a home gamer and uh, and just do the processing yourself. Yeah. So is there uh, is there an article or some sort of media that the QDMA pro- provides to show you how to uh, cape out a deer or how to bone it out? I don't think we have got that on our website, but certainly there are a million YouTube videos sure. out there of how to do that. And in fact, I did a a, a, a deer processing night the other night uh, for some of our field to fork students. We run a, an oh, adult cool. onset hunter course, and um, <laughs> these are people that we recruit out of the local community. And the ages ranged in this class from seventeen to seventy. Oh wow! Uh, 
wanted to be a first time hunter at 70. No one had ever asked him. He always wanted to, wow. never had a way to do it, you know? So there are people all around us that work with you and, and uh, around you and your social circles that are adults that are maybe a little embarrassed to, or intimidated to take up hunting as an adult. But beauty about that is they can start hunting and buy a license the next day. Whereas kids, we all love kids. Uh, but you know, if you take a 12 year old, he or she's four or five, six years away from having any money and a car and the ability <laughs> yeah. to control their own lives. And you know, the, the success is really with the adults right now. So we really got to focus there. But anyway, I was doing that process and for them. And, and I, I was amazed at how intent they were on this demonstration mm-hmm. because to, the food is a big driving factor. Sure. And, you know, we, we did a full deboning uh, process where I showed them all the different cuts and what they were best for. And then we actually turned some of it into to, to bratwurst right there on the spot and then cooked oh. it. And it was a phenomenal. I mean, they just ate it like, you know, they were ravenous carnivores. I mean, it was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a, that whole process to me is enjoyable. So I encourage people to get involved in the whole totality of it, you know, yeah. the full circle from yeah. the hunt to the table. Sure, yeah. So, okay, so this brings up a question. Um, you know, you, whether I guess you could do you, this could be done in the boning out process or um, if you were – say you had your skull cap and uh you, you know take it off of there and there's brain matter on it you take your knife and you you know kind of get the brain matter off of this thing is that knife do you throw that knife away i mean well i mean if there's probably at some microscopic level of you know a prion or two or three or five thousand i don't know how many <laughs> of these little things it takes to to you know be infectious uh, i don't know that i'd throw my knife away but you know, because the chances of the, those prions getting into the, the the environment in enough quantity that a deer uptakes them is probably pretty microscopic. Um, but you know, here's here's kind of the guidance we give hunters, and and my personal opinion I'll share as well. And you know, right now there is no evidence that CWD uh, infected animals causes the human form of the disease, uh, which is called variant Crutchfield-Jakob disease. Um, it's a spontaneous brain disease in about one percent of americans uh there's no evidence that that eating infected deer causes that in humans and and cdc and other groups have been looking for trends for for literally decades so if it was a a huge trend out there we would have caught it they would have caught it so if it is occurring it's occurring at an extremely low prevalence rate in humans if it is and that's the big if uh they have researchers have shown experimentally through what they call transgenic mice, mice with human genes inserted into them, that is is at least remotely, or it is possible that that uh, humans could contract the disease. A small group of these uh, these mice contracted the human form. And a more recent study out of Canada with with macaque monkeys showed a similar uh, result that a a portion of those macaque monkeys uh, did contract the human form of of the disease when uh, being both fed and inoculated with. Uh, infectious material now the jury's still out uh you know we've known about similar diseases uh, one called scrapie uh, in sheep for for you know a, a couple hundred years and it's almost identical to chronic wasting disease and there's never been a, a known human fatality uh, but then we have another close cousin called bse or mad cow disease and that killed 177 europeans uh, about 20 years ago mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's 177 out of literally probably 10 million people who consumed infected uh, uh, beef. 
So, you know, probably that many people literally died on the way to or from the grocery store to buy their beef um, <laughs> in, in vehicles, you know, in, you know, car crashes and heart attacks and things. Yeah, sure. So, so again, you know, it's, if, if it's occurring, it's occurring at a low rate. My personal opinion is if I knew it were CWD positive, I would not eat it. And, I, and that's, the gen, that's the general guidance from most people in the know around the nation. Just on the safe side, if you know for a fact, you know, if you hunt an area with CWD, there's likely some way through a state agency generally to have your animal tested generally for nothing, sometimes for a nominal cost. If it is a nominal cost, I would pay it uh, just because I want to know. Uh, and then you can take that stuff back home, processed in your freezer. If, in fact, you get the results back a couple of weeks later and it says Oops, it's positive, then I would contact my state wildlife agency and, and ask for their um, disposal, preferred disposal method. Uh, some, uh, many modern landfills are, are a good option because they have certain sealants and various ways to contain leaching of, of, uh, of all kinds of things. Uh, some states have gone as far as by incinerators. Um, you know, would not go out and just dump it in the woods because mm-hmm. again, that's, that's almost the same as taking an, you know, infected animal from one place to the other. So, sure. um, you know, bury it very deep, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, at the at the TRCP event, we heard from a few re- researchers, biologists that are kind of on the leading edge of CWD uh, in a panel situation. And forgive me for not remembering their names, but um, uh, they kind of had like some scary uh, thoughts about the possibilities of it jumping to humans uh, in regards to like, uh, they talked about, I think with the macaques, some of the studies had showed they had shown symptoms uh, similar to diabetes and some of these like chronic diseases that humans have, and so they there was a statement that was something along the lines of maybe I mean this could possibly be what we're seeing in humans and and the fact that it plays out in such a you know it, this can be such a long process that a human would actually develop symptoms. Mm-hmm. It could be fifty years or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what's the? That's, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's 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 that, and that, there's two things that that cause great concern for researchers on this disease. Uh, one is the fact that it takes so long to manifest, both in deer and in humans. Uh, in deer, and that's one thing you know, I hear hunters sometimes, you know, make the remark of. You know that deer. No way that deer had chronic wasting disease. Fat as fat as mud and healthy as a horse, kind of thing. Yeah. And 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 you can't tell by looking at one. It takes generally years for an animal to to look symptomatic. In other words, look sick and weak and emaciated. Um, and 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 the other thing is the the prion diseases as a as a group are known to mutate. Um, so we have we know now that we have different strains, if you will, of CWD. One CWD prion is not the same as as another necessarily. They when they misshape and fold back on themselves, causing the abnormal form of this protein, sometimes they don't fold back exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And so so there are different strains of CWD, and there are probably different levels of susceptibility among humans hmm. to. CWD. Um, we know, for ex- example, that about 5% of whitetails have a particular genotype or set of genes that makes them much more resistant to the disease. Uh, it's it's in very low prevalence, 5% or less of whitetails, which means it probably isn't a good genotype. In other words, nature has selected against this genotype for whatever reason, for thousands if not millions of years. So there's, But for whatever reason, this one you know, is more resistant to the disease. It is not immune. 100% of these animals still get the disease. 
100% will die um, at some point, if not killed by a hunter or some other factor to the disease. Uh, and they live longer, meaning they shed more of the mm-hmm. virus material if they're infected. So it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it may give us hope that we can find a, a, a particular uh, subspecies or, or type of whitetails out there, because there are a lot of different ones across the North America, that is completely resistant. We haven't found that animal yet. We don't know if it exists. We don't know if it can be bred uh, into them over generations through selective breeding. We don't know those those answers. Um, but that's certainly one possible route of, of beating this disease long term is to find a a type of whitetail that's completely immune to the disease and and uh, you know repopulate areas that that over time get depopulated by the ones that that aren't immune mm-hmm. and just rebuild our herds that way. But that's a that's a little pie in the sky stuff right now that sure. we. Just, you know, we don't know about. Yeah. So say you shot a, you shot a deer or an elk from a high CWD area last year and you still have some big roasts in your freezer. Um, and you're kind of worried about it. Do you, is there a way to test that deer at this point? There's not a way to test the meat. Uh, not a, not a practical way. I mean, the researchers can, can, there's some high level tests that could probably detect it, but what they're going to pull is, is, um, a very specific part of the, the brain and lymph system at a check station somewhere, which is the gold standard pieces of your deer. So once that, that head and neck is, is removed, uh, the, the researchers aren't going to be able to test your deer for you. Gotcha. So that, that there's so that so if a hunter's listening that shot a deer, that first thing I do is go go on the Onyx app and see if the county in which you kill that animal is known to be CWD positive. Uh, QDMA partnered with Onyx, and we got a layer across the. The, their their app their map rather that shows you so first go in there and see if that county's red with CWD if it is then you just have to and then you didn't get it tested uh, for whatever reason then you just have to make a fundamental decision you know is it uh, it's probably a low a low risk thing because even in a a herd that's had CWD a long time generally speaking you know prevalence rates are you know one to five six seven percent I mean there are certainly examples in Wisconsin that are thirty percent. Um, but most are in that low, you know, single digit range. So you'd have a less than 5% chance of having that animal with CWD. That said, you know, you start off a conversation with, I love antlers. Well, I do too. Uh, <laughs> the, the, and I, and I, I like bigger antlers cause I like to hunt mature animals. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately mature deer and elk, particularly deer have three to four times higher prevalence rates than does. Uh, they have larger home ranges. They are more social animals with, with licking and grooming and various things they do. So they are more likely to contract the disease. So if you shot a, an adult whitetail, an adult mule deer, an adult elk in a CWD area, whatever the overall prevalence rate is, the males are several times higher than that. So you'd have to double or triple that to get a you know ballpark estimate of what, what your chances might be. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So how do you – I mean, it's the testing, I've done some research uh, recently on – you know, how to test your animals in, in a couple different states. And it's actually pretty hard to find how to get that done. It's it's not a very uh, top result on Google searches. Yeah. I no, mean, there, there needs to be some coordination. That, that, that's one of our biggest um, concerns as an organization is if, if the states can't make it easy enough, a lot of people are going to say, the heck with it, just take their chances. Um, and, and therefore our risk of spreading it just keeps going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem is these things cost a lot of money. Uh, the, the labs, the, the check stations, the sample collection, I mean, 
states are now spending millions of dollars that once went to wildlife management areas or buying new public land or or helping private landowners. I mean, whatever all the good things that state agencies have spent their dollars on in the past now are getting diverted to CWD. Uh, it's it's just a, an absolute atrocity of how many dollars, taxpayer, our dollars, uh, that used to be providing great hunter and landowner services uh, are now you know, going into chronic waste and disease, and and, and we've got to figure this thing out. I mean, that's there's no no doubt about it. And you know, we're we're uh, we're active, working behind the scenes. We we've got three, uh, we helped with three uh, uh, bills that um, have as much as twenty five million dollars associated with them that are in Congress right now. We're trying to push through the through the uh, the circles of of DC. Uh, we've got another one that uh, would pay for a, a National Academies of Science review of the uh, national herd certification program. It's for the captive deer industry. Uh, our our belief is there's a lot of loopholes in that. Mm-hmm. They're increasing risk. There's now been a uh, hundred, uh, right at a hundred, last time I checked, ninety something captive uh, facilities in this country that have tested positive for CWD. Um, it's not what they want. I'm not putting the, the blame on them as much as it's just that the activities they do have risk and. When they move and buy and sell and trade deer, you know, there's a higher, you know, higher level of risk. And sure. there's just certain things that we believe as an organization need to be done to to uh, to tighten the to tighten that that uh, industry down a little bit just to further reduce the risk. And uh, we're, we're working hard to try to try to get some of those those positive changes. Yeah, we can yeah. appreciate that here in Texas. For yeah, sure. no kidding. Do you think that um, uh, say you take a state like Texas where you have um, a cervid like elk that are free ranging in some areas, and then in a lot of captive cervid pens um, that aren't considered a game animal. Is that um, problematic in, in the spread of CWD since you have such a large animal that is very social that doesn't have any regulation? Yeah, what, where, where, the, where that challenge comes in is, is the nexus between. The, the the fact that they're in a pen or not in a pen in and of itself doesn't doesn't increase the risk of CWD. Mm-hmm. What 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 really does get down to though is is who has jurisdiction. And Texas is a good case um, because it's it's a, a situation where you have two agencies that share uh, jurisdiction over captive deer, and you have Texas Parks and Wildlife and you have Texas Animal Health Commission. And Texas is actually a, a good situation where those two agencies work together pretty well and have a you know high degree of concern over CWD. Uh, other states, however, um, some states, um, many states, in fact, um, the, the state's ag agency is the one that has jurisdiction over over the captive deer, and sometimes that becomes a little bit of a train wreck, and because they have you know less concern over impacts on wild deer, their job is to help landowners diversify their income, whether that be captive deer in this case, or alpacas, or emus, or, or any number of other activities. Um, so our, our, our position as, a, as an organization is that the state wildlife agency should have the primary jurisdiction because, you know, their, their mission is to protect wild deer. So they're much more aggressive typically on depopulating herds that um, – captive herds that become uh, infected with CWD, uh, much uh, generally more, more stringent on requirements and, and uh, making sure they comply with all the applicable rules and regulations. So, you know, we certainly would, would uh, recommend state agencies having that control rather than ag agencies, but about half the states have shared jurisdiction out there yeah i got you well brian man it's been great getting to pick your brain on some of this stuff because i feel like um a lot of times the general sportsman's concern is is a little bit like 
uh, not front of mind, which for good reason, right? Like we're concerned about the deer, but we want to do our best to, you know, help, you know, and, uh, um, and to just, well, not really help, but just do the least amount of damage as possible. You know, it'd be terrible to like you be the one who brought a, a animal back and now your county, county has it, you know, like it just, well, yeah, well, I, I, I kind of think of chronic wasting disease is, is similar to someone wanting to put a, you know, a nuclear facility next to my property or, or, or a big garbage dump. It's that old NIMBY, NIMBY acronym, not in my backyard. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And, 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 and we ought to all think about that as, cause I am, I for one don't believe that chronic wasting disease has to infect every county and every deer herd in the country. Yes, it's in 25 states, but if you drill down deeper, it's, it's only in about, you know, 240 counties in the whole U.S. And that's about mm-hmm. 8% of all available counties. So 92% of hunters hunt in areas that don't have it. So the key is, if you don't, do everything you can to prevent it from coming in. And the first thing you can do is, is be responsible yourself, uh, get knowledgeable about it, and just don't bring infected parts back to your, your neck of the woods. Second thing is to, is to you know, be, be, be outspoken in your local hunting circles and, and, and kind of check up your friends. It's kind of like the old days when poaching was more common. People, most of that change through societal behavior changes Mm -hmm. the same with drinking and driving wearing seat belts there's a lot of these things you can point to that you know attitudes and paradigms can shift and so we we just have to do that Uh, and we have to pass that on to to the next generation so that each successive generation of hunters becomes more vigilant and uh, responsible because if not we're gonna you know we have a chance to lose this game yeah uh, yeah no kidding. So, so join your local QMA branch, and you can help shame somebody into not spreading CWD. Right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. But first thing, first thing is just get knowledgeable about it. You know, the average hunter out there can't um, clearly you know, uh, define how CWD is different than EHD. Yes, right? there's there's, it's there's just letters in right? It's just, just yeah, just just jargon. And yeah. uh, you know, EHD kills a lot of deer, but it's very different than CWD. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, that's not one we can do much about. CWD is one we can do something about. Yeah. And, 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 and the biggest thing is not moving live deer or, or parts. But, you know, once, uh, you know, once CWD hits an area, you know, hunters often lose things they, they cherish, like feeding and baiting and minerals and deer urine and natural deer urine and so forth. So, you know, those things, you know, are culturally def- – you know, Texas is a great example. I mean, you try to take feeding away from Texans, and boy, you can start a range <laughs> oh, war. Oh yeah. Um, you know, a less controversial subject would be the use of natural deer urine, but a lot of people do use natural deer urine in hunting, and you know, there is some degree of risk in natural deer urine. Mm-hmm. We think it's very low, but you know, if if you're so concerned about CWD, you know, that would be one one area, one thing you could do mm-hmm. is go to a synthetic, go to a, a synthetic uh, deer urine product, which more and more manufacturers are making. Uh, that would be kind of recommendation number one. And if you say, well, I'm not ready to go to synthetics, the next best option would be to check the back of the bottle. And if it's got a big check mark from the Archery Trade Association, then that means that urine producer is participating in a voluntary program that the, the, the deer urine industry uh, voluntarily adopted on themselves, which re- requires more stringent regulation within their own production facilities than is required by ag. So, you know, they took a voluntary measure to try to safeguard their ship, uh, which I, I commend them for. Yeah, that's cool. Um, that's good, good knowledge too. I didn't know that was a thing. So that's, that's awesome. So, you know, it's a good way for us to hang on the stuff we cherish. And I know we kind of started this with questions about trophies, you know, and, uh, you know, the big thing for us, of course, is the meat, um, but we all like the the beautiful antlers. So is CWD uh, gonna kind of just 
end the euro mount? I mean, is there any way to make that still be something that you do and that you that you you know a way to preserve your trophy, or is it just not going to be an option? Oh no, there are there are techniques uh, that don't require cutting through the skull or the skull cap off. You can have the the whole white bleach skull, which I love a good European as uh, mount as much as anybody. Mm-hmm. But no, there's some taxidermists that have techniques that can can blow that out with pressure washers and various other things that. Uh, uh, can can save that. So no, I don't see the end of that. But what I do see uh, is because older males are more likely to be infected, more and more states uh, are are removing antler restrictions on deer and elk because they they don't want their populations to have a lot of older age males in them. Uh, so so that means that over time there's going to be fewer trophies. Uh, because fewer older bucks and or, or bulls in the herd, uh, so that's a that's a that's a big conundrum. And in many areas, landowners and hunters are being encouraged to shoot the daylights out of the young bucks again. And that's very contrary to where our nation as of hunters has gone over the last thirty years towards quality deer management and you know producing these older bucks. They're more fun to hunt. They're you know uh, I don't know where that's going to end, but that's the, right. there's a definitely a, a collision course coming. Mm. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking when you were mentioning that. What, what's the you know, is that just kind of a Band-Aid that we keep on forever? Or when does, you know, when do we just do that until we find a cure? Or, you know, how do we, yeah. is there ever an end to just shooting every buck like we used to do prior to QDMA? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. And that's a scary, it's a scary thought because we don't know what that looks like. Now, what our, our position is a little different. And you'd probably imagine so being the organization that kind of is behind the quality deer management movement. But we, we contend that having at least some deer up to three years of bucks, up to three years of age in a herd is an acceptable trade off if hunters stay engaged. They stay uh, working with their state wildlife agency and testing, and they harvest enough antlerless deer because stuff spreads in, in the females too. Mm-hmm. And particularly older does are more likely to have it than young does, just as bucks. So, you know, keeping the hammer on the does is a good way that we think an offset. Because if you if if hunters just say, oh, it's just not worth it anymore, I'm not going to hunt if I can't hunt. Uh, at least a three-year-old buck then they don't hunt and then they'll buy a license they don't control antlerless deer they're not a part of the solution they're part of the problem mm-hmm. so so we think there's a trade-off there uh, at least we want to test that hypothesis that you know allowing some bucks to reach at least middle age is is worth it in cwd management if hunters will do the right thing on testing and doe harvest right right cool and and keep and keeping engaged yeah so uh are, are we on the brink of a live test? Does that seem like something that's plausible in the next decade or so? Yes. Uh, there, and there are a couple out there that are being used. They're not approved yet, um, but the, the deer farming industry is, is using a, a rectal and a, and a tonsil test that are pretty good. Uh, they're not where we need them to be, but... Uh, and that'll help only on on testing the live animals, and that's a very small part of it. I mean, it's an important part of it. We need a a much more rapid, effective hunter test on harvested animals, yeah, I and mean, that yeah. that would that would that would do us more value right now for the hunter. Uh, but certainly, the, the the deer industry needs a live test, and so does some states that uh, so do some states that are still moving deer and elk. Um, and and what we recommend right now is a complete moratorium across the board of all live deer and elk until we. Can a better handle on it now that recommendation has gone to you know uh, very high up folks within usda and others and it's fallen on deaf ears um mm-hmm. yeah. frankly yeah uh, but that's what that's what we contend is necessary and uh and, and would be the best first step but it's not it's unlikely to happen there's just too much politics involved with 
moving deer and elk. I mean, it's a, it's yep. a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people tied up in a lot of places behind those those industries. There's lots of money behind it all too. So. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, Brian, man, wealth of knowledge as we really came to figure out at TRCP Summit uh, <laughs> through our good talks, man. So I appreciate you hopping on the phone with us again, and and good luck this fall, man. Uh, same to you. Always a pleasure. Yes, sir. Anything we can do on this end. Glad to help. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Man, lots of good info. It's hard to keep up with Brian sometimes. My goodness. That <laughs> has been a lot of places, done a lot of cool things, and is willing to share that with you in in such a well-articulated way, right? Like right. he knows all this stuff. That's what's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's on our side, man. No kidding. You know, like you look at somebody that's smart as a whip like him, and and, and uh, you just got to be glad that they're on your side about pretty much everything. And that's I, right. And I, I'm, uh, you know, hoping that maybe we can get get him back on the podcast, talk other things that are a little less depressing. Uh, but I'm glad that he was able to provide us info because, like I said, we had these questions going in this year since we're going to be traveling out of state some in the next couple of years. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have traveled out of state so far uh, this year. And so, like, just thinking about all that, man, it's uh, it's important to know that stuff. And, and even out of county, you know, that kind of thing, like we talked about earlier, it could yep. be potentially spreading so that's right guys it's just something that we have to be aware of now but it's nothing to be depressed about you know we're still gonna hunt we're still gonna love it but we need to do our best to preserve this resource that's right man that's a that's a good way to wrap up this episode i think let's do it let's go check a trek all right all right man (laughs) remember this is your element living it First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.